Welcome to episode three of the Applied Political Philosophy podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jack Miller. In this episode, we'll examine the most permanent and yet difficult avenue of political reform, constitutional amendment. The following is an excerpt from a lecture I delivered in April 2020. I hope you enjoy it. Starting kind of at the foundational notion of what amending a constitution as an avenue of reform is about is that it's a necessary feature of a democratic system, or at least it's seen by pretty much every constitution writer that the constitution is the foundational set of rules and procedures and institutions and roles for a democratic system, but that there's no reason to think that that should be set in stone when saying okay, there needs to be a method to revise the Constitution, but how easy should that method be? What should it be? What should the procedures or institutions or regulations that are built into the Constitution itself, what should they be? There are two considerations, two countervailing considerations are responsiveness and stability. Both of these are really important values when you're talking about the foundation of a political system. When you establish a democratic political system by writing a constitution, by gathering people together who are representatives of the people who are going to have to live under that constitution, and not only representatives of the people who are going to have to live under it, representatives of the future as well. The people who gather for, for constitutional conventions are determining the political system not just for their constituents at the moment, but for their generational constituents. So it's a pretty significant act of representation. There are lots of questions of design, right? How do you, how, what kinds of uh, roles and rules and institutions and regulations? But a big one here, and it's, you know, it is uh, often like the last part of a constitution. All the stuff is written and then, okay, here's the amendment process. Responsiveness is important because as the essentially delegates of a generational constituency, there's a basic understanding that the future is gonna look different. There needs to be room for this system to be a living, breathing organism that responds to the way the future is different. Not every problem that might arise, not every idea, not every social movement, not the nature of the dominant political values that exist in the moment are going to endure for all time. And what are those changes going to look like? So the, the founders, the writers of a constitution know that it's important to create, not only create a mechanism, but to make sure that mechanism is responsive to the future. Yet, stability, the countervailing force, is also important because if you make a constitution too easy to change, what you're doing is you're generating the possibility that political expectations, systemic expectations, are going to be disrupted so frequently that the system itself might lack legitimacy, it might be confusing to people, political outcomes could be too open-ended, and there could be too much change. There's an acknowledgement that the people of the present and the future are potentially also going to be fickle and unwise and unreflective and there needs to be a safeguard, at least at this foundational level, against overly precipitous change so that the entire system can have stability, so that it can be enduring, but also so that people can have a stability of expectations, that they'll know what elections are going to look like five years from now. They may not know what elections are going to look like 25 years from now, but they know that if they do look different 25 years from now, that that change will have had to overcome some kind of pretty major obstacle so that it must be a really important type of change. 
There's also just at kind of a levels of analysis reason to make the fundamental system more stable than the statutory system is that normal politics, the day-to-day -day battle over policy, the making of statutory law, the remaking of statutory law, the further regulation through executive branches, uh, the acts of judicial review, these are normal politics. This is the stuff that goes on on a daily basis. It's part of the struggle of political actors seeking to get what they want out of the political system. A constitutional scheme sets up the arena for normal politics. What you want to do is to make the nature of that arena flexible for the future, but you don't want to make the arena making and the arena remaking as open as normal politics. There's kind of this distinction between normal and extraordinary politics. Amending a constitution belongs to extraordinary politics versus normal politics. If amending a constitution were too easy, if it were basically either identical to or virtually identical to the normal statutory process or the normal regulatory process or even the process of judicial review, then it obliterates an important distinction between foundational questions and day-to-day -day questions. If it's really practically impossible to or impossible to alter a constitution, daily politics will become more and more divorced from the reality of daily life. So, extraordinary politics is necessary to provide responsiveness and flexibility, but it also should be in some sense immune from the same kinds of transformative forces. There's a good reason in democratic theory to have amending a constitution be harder. Now, knowing that kind of abstractly, that there, there needs to be a balance between responsiveness and stability, that both of those concerns are legitimate and both of them have to be built in. Now the question is, in what proportion? How do you balance them? How much stability do we want to get knowing that additional levels of stability are gonna result in decreased responsiveness? So there's an automatic trade-off. Stability gives us essentially the knowledge that extraordinary politics will be infrequent they will only happen when the times call for something that is extraordinary. Right? That's what extraordinary means. It's extraordinary, above the ordinary. Responsiveness, we want to we actually make it possible for extraordinary politics to be accessible to the people. But how accessible? What are the trade-offs? What's the balance going to be? That's the basic sort of philosophical landscape of the question about how do you set up a mechanism for amending the Constitution. There are a lot of answers to that, but there's no right answer, right? Whenever you're talking about trade-offs between two equally valuable, or at least very powerful values or considerations, like both responsiveness and stability, both of which are super important to a democratic society, there, there's no right balance. There's no right answer. There's no like, oh, okay, if we just do the math and carry the one, and okay, here's, here's the procedure for amending the Constitution. You're always going to have a lot of different options for the extraordinary politics, for the constitutional amendment process that are legitimate and compelling and reasonable and strike a good balance between these two kinds of things. The, the question always has to be, what kind of balance do we want? At the U.S. constitutional level, the decision was made to make the amendment process extraordinarily difficult. And that process is two-thirds of both houses of Congress plus three-quarters of the states. Theoretically, that could be a higher obstacle, 
but that's about as high as it gets, right? Theoretically, it could be three quarters of both houses of Congress, and the president has to sign it, and four fifths of the states, right? That you could always up these numbers, and you can always make it consensus required. There is actually one change that does require consensus, and that is changing equal representation in the Senate. No state can be denied equal representation in the Senate without its consent, which means essentially 100% agreement for that. So it could always be higher, but this is a relatively high bar. And the U.S. Constitution has only been amended 27 times, and really, because the Bill of Rights was one lump, and so I consider 1 through 10 to be one amendment, really only has only been amended 18 times over the course of now 230 plus years. That's you know an average of one every 23 years, though the way it's worked out is there have been eras of sporadic constitutional amendment. Obviously the Bill of Rights, and, but then the founding generation passed first 12 amendments. So 1 through 10 was done all in one act, and then the 11th amendment was in 1793, and the 12th amendment was in 1803. So this, the, the founding generation, the people who actually wrote the Constitution and created this level of uh, stability versus responsiveness, they themselves amended the Constitution three times. So the bar was not so high that they didn't do it. And really, all three of those, though, were kind of fixes. They were, they were things were like, oh yeah, here at the Constitutional Convention, we didn't quite get it right. So it wasn't as though they were responding to changing terrain. They were really just kind of fixing things up that they, that they didn't anticipate would play out the way they played out. Following that, there was the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment that was passed during and immediately after the Civil War, the Reconstruction Amendments, which resulted from a very specific political conflict. And it was really less about responsiveness and more about power. The reason why the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments were added to the U.S. Constitution was because the Union won the Civil War and was able to impose its view of what the Constitution should become, skewing it towards greater level of federal power and skewing it towards fewer states' rights. Still not eliminating states' rights. States' rights weren't obliterated by the Union victory in the Civil War, but definitely giving the federal government more tools and then also putting in specific new requirements that nationalized the system of rights, for example, with the 14th Amendment and expanded voting rights with the 15th Amendment and ended slavery, essentially obliterating one version of a state's rights, the most important state rights that the southern states wanted to defend by uh, seceding from the Union was the right to have a slave system. That all happened at once, and that was in 1865 to 1870. The previous amendment before that was 1803, which was the 12th Amendment. So there were 50-plus years, or 60-plus years between amendments. In, in the Constitution. That's because the stability was so, was so strong. There were proposed amendments all along that way. There have always been proposed amendments. There have even been a number of amendments that have reached the two-thirds of both houses of Congress threshold that have not crossed the three-quarters of the state's threshold. So it's not as though there aren't consistent attempts to amend the U.S. Constitution. They're just not very successful. The next round of amendment was the Progressive Era, and this is when we got uh, a series of another four amendments. From 1870, when the 15th Amendment was passed, until 1913, when the 16th Amendment was passed, another 43 years, right? Uh, essentially two generations passed. And this has been relatively typical that one or two generations pass between bouts of amendments. And so the U.S. Constitution, while we have 18 amendments and an average of one every 23 years, which I consider that to be roughly a generation, we, we, we get on average one new amendment per generation. We don't really get 
a new amendment each generation. We get bursts of them every couple of generations. The last time the U.S. Constitution was amended was in 1992, which is at this point, as of this recording, 28 years ago. So we've, we've already exceeded the average. And there doesn't seem to be a strong candidate for a new constitutional amendment passing both of these thresholds. There are things that, are, that have been wanted. There are things that have been uh, proposed and even passed through at least one House of Congress, definitely not both. But it just seems like we're a long way away. The clock is ticking and the average is getting higher. And in fact, really the last time the U.S. Constitution was meaningfully amended was in 1971, which is fully a half century ago, barring states from having voting ages higher than 18. That was a meaningful change because it was an expansion of voting rights. And the 27th Amendment ratified in 1992 was actually not a new amendment. There's a weird story behind this one in that, so the 27th Amendment prevents Congress from raising its compensation, from giving itself a pay raise, until the next election cycle has happened. They can pass a bill and the president can sign the law giving themselves a pay raise, but that pay raise can't take effect until the next Congress is sworn in. And the idea being that this is a check on the power to set your own pay. Most people don't get to set their own pay. Congress gets to set its own pay. The idea of this amendment is to make sure that the people have the right to weigh in on the people who give themselves a pay raise. So if you vote a pay raise for yourself, you, before you get that pay raise, you have to actually go back to the voters and get their approval for you to get that job back. Somebody's gonna get the job, the pay raise is gonna happen, but you may not get the pay raise. Now, this idea, and it's, that's a relatively minor correction to our system. It's a, it's a real political reform, I don't wanna denigrate it, but compared to say, expanding voting rights for young people, or expanding voting rights for African Americans, or limiting the term of the presidency to two, or granting the federal government the right to collect an income tax, this is really, it's, it's a tiny little corner that doesn't do a whole lot of good, and Congress is not raising its own pay all the time anyway. This amendment was not a response to runaway pay raises by Congress. Usually, constitutional amendments are a, a response to a long-term running problem. The 27th Amendment is a really weird one because it was part of the original Bill of Rights. In the first Congress, when sort of the Federalists had made a promise to the Anti-Federalists that if they pushed for ratification of the Constitution, they would add a Bill of Rights to the Constitution, and the first Congress got right down to the business of doing it, and James Madison took in all kinds of suggestions and received 200 plus suggested amendments, which he kind of correlated, collated, and got down to 12 amendments. The Bill of Rights was 12 amendments. Those 12 amendments were all passed by two-thirds of both houses of Congress pretty quickly and sent to the states, and only amendments 3 through 12 were actually ratified by the requisite three-quarters of the states. The first, the original OG First Amendment, which actually capped the number of constituents that could be represented by a member of the House of Representatives at 50,000, was rejected by the states and never became part of the U.S. Constitution. And if it had, the uh, House of Representatives today would be roughly 5,000 people instead of 435 that it is. And, and maybe that would have been good because it would have, it would have grown steadily over the course of 230 years to that 5,000 level. It wouldn't have just gone, like if we, if we adopted that today, it would go from 435 and become an order of magnitude larger. But that was rejected. The second amendment was also rejected and the second amendment was the limitation on Congress giving itself pay raises that later became the 27th Amendment. And the reason it became the 27th Amendment is because a graduate student in Texas was doing research on constitutional history and came across the original Second Amendment, which had passed two-thirds of the Houses of Congress, and 
the three quarters of the states hadn't ratified it, but in his research and analysis of sort of constitutional scholars, the original two-thirds grant of this is a legitimate amendment that can go on to three quarters of the states hadn't expired. And there was no expiration built into the Constitution, and constitutional scholars accepted the fact that once an amendment had received two-thirds of both houses of Congress, there was no clock ticking. It didn't last until the next election of Congress. It didn't last. There was no deadline. And so that Second Amendment, and the First Amendment as well, were still essentially alive. He kind of made this, made the world aware of this, and then got state, state legislatures to ratify it, so the three-quarters of the states ratified it. So we got a new amendment in 1992, but that original amendment had been written in 1789 and had been passed by the two-thirds two of both houses of Congress two centuries earlier. So it really wasn't a new constitutional amendment. And again, it was relatively minor. Now I say all this because one, I think it's kind of a fascinating story. And what has subsequently happened, and not because of this guy's research, but because of the realization that this was a problem, is that when Congress has voted two thirds of both houses for a constitutional amendment, it has put a timeline on that so that if three quarters of the states don't ratify by that end of that timeline, then the congressional grant expires. That's what happened to the Equal Rights Amendment, which never did become part of the U.S. Constitution. It was passed by two-thirds of both houses of Congress. A bunch of states ratified it right away, but not three-quarters of the states. There was a big effort to try to get it there. Congress extended the deadline, and it missed the deadline again, and so it expired. There have been efforts since then to reintroduce, uh, or there, it's actually been reintroduced, the Equal Rights Amendment, several times, but it's not getting anywhere near the two-thirds of the both houses of Congress that would need to go to three-quarters of the states. And it's not clear the three-quarters of the states would ratify it, even if it were passed through, just like it happened in the 70s, that it didn't. That shows, like that was partly savvy on the Congress's part, let's, let's put an expiration date on this, but also that shows that there was, there, there's a strong tendency towards stability, the enduring framework. So the last time we had a meaningful revision of the U.S. Constitution was 1971, half a century ago and counting. That's partly because of this and partly because of something that often arises in political systems, which is a set of political traditions that can come to actually have the same level of power as actual institutional features. There is a mythology of the Constitution, and there's this mythology, and there has been for a very long time, but it's continued to strengthen around the Founding Fathers and their wisdom and the fact that they got it right, and that we've had this enduring Constitution for over 200 years, and it allowed this nation to become the most powerful nation on earth. All of that has, like, that mythology has fed into the fact that, like, the Constitution itself is untouchable. So, institutionally, there's a pretty high hurdle to get across to amend the U.S. Constitution. And then when you add to that the mythology that the Constitution is perfect or nearly perfect, touching it uh, is really kind of potentially dangerous, then it makes the Constitution even more difficult to amend because it, it makes it harder for two-thirds of members of Congress and three-quarters of states to actually say, yeah, you know, the Constitution is broken enough that we want to fix it. It's not broken. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. That horrible cliche, that dictum, is one of the things that makes political reform in all of its avenues difficult, right? You have to first be able to show that there's a problem that needs addressing uh, and that the problem is bad enough to risk change, uncertainty of change. Our Constitution, I just really don't see our Constitution being amended 
in any meaningful way, or even at all, even in a kind of ceremonial way, for it's, it, could, it could take something that I don't see coming. Of course, the world has all kinds of things coming. Who saw the coronavirus pandemic coming? Most of us didn't see it coming. Who knows? I don't think this is gonna be the kind of disruption, major as it is, to our culture and to our economic system, that it's gonna produce a, a movement to create a constitutional amendment. It's definitely producing a movement to create new policies and new statutes are being written, new regulations and new funding, all that stuff is happening. That's still also sort of just normal politics in the sense of day-to-day -day responding to things that are going on. To get extraordinary politics back into the life of the nation at the, at the US level seems to me kind of unthinkable. One of the great things about our federal system, and there are a variety of them, is, and of course it causes problems too, as we're seeing right now with the difference between state responses and the federal response to the coronavirus pandemic, but one of the benefits of it is that the U.S. Constitution can stay fixed in stone, and yet we as Americans, and at least in different states, have the opportunity to engage in constitutional amendment political reform activity. Since so much of what goes on in politics happens at the state level, there's a lot of diversity in that, and the distinction between normal politics and extraordinary politics is less sharp in many of the states. And what we do get also in the 50 states is we get a diversity. Some states have a level of distinction between normal politics and extraordinary politics that's closer to the U.S. Constitution, and some of them have ones that are closer to the Oregon Constitution. Really, it, at the two ends of the spectrum in, our, in the United States stands Oregon, probably the easiest, or at least one of the handful of easiest constitutions to amend, and the U.S. Constitution, the, the hardest, both institutionally and culturally, to amend. Part of what's allowed the U.S. Constitution to be such an enduring framework, and to tilt heavily towards stability and away from responsiveness, is that responsiveness is available in other places within our political system.